So if you've been at Cornerstone for any period of time, even if it's been a couple months or even a couple weeks, uh, you've heard a lot about this community stuff that we've been pushing. We've been talking a lot about community. We've been talking a lot about joining together in the one another's and partnering together with other believers in your neighborhood. We've been talking about loving your literal neighbor, reaching out to the people on either side of you. We've been talking about reaching out to those people across the street and around the corner. I mean, we've been talking a lot about community, about mission, about gospel, about neighbors. And I sometimes, I'm critical of myself, and so I ask myself often, how am I doing? Am I, I try to gauge how I'm doing. And I don't know if a lot of you guys are trying to gauge how you're doing with this whole community stuff. Because I hear stories about what a lot of you guys are doing in your neighborhoods, and I get excited, but there's a part of me that I, I kind of feel condemned. I'm like, crud, I'm not doing what they're doing. I'm, I'm not loving my neighbor the way I should. And uh, a lot of times I'll get overwhelmed and I'll debilitate myself and I'll think that God's not pleased with me. You see, um, it was a couple months ago, I was up at a cabin in Fraser Park. <clears throat> and I was up there with a couple of the outside CME leaders. And we were sitting around the table on a Saturday night. We were talking about our view of God. And the only way that I could describe um, the way I view God was by way of analogy. And so I told them, I said, the way I think of God is like, God is my soccer coach. I'm a soccer player, okay? And uh, he's not a soccer mom, but a soccer coach. And so I go out on the field and I run around and I hustle and I work hard and I, uh, I dribble well. Uh, dribble well. Yeah, dribble well. That's right. Soccer. And then I, I pass the ball well, but maybe I'll trip up on that same pothole. Maybe I'll pass the ball out of bounds. Maybe I'll go for a shot and I'll kick it over the goalpost. And I'll think, as I'm coming off the field, I'll think that God's kind of like, do the best you could, Matt. I mean, you know, you hustled, but you also tripped on that spot. I told you about it. I put a cone by it. You know, you, you kicked the ball out of bounds and you went for that shot. I told you, keep your head down and... Again, it went over the goalposts. And I, I think of, that God's constantly disappointed in me and just kind of like tolerating me and putting up with me. Like, and one of the guys was like, seriously, Matt, that's how you view God? I'm like, yeah, I feel like at the end of the day, I'm looking back and I think that he's emphasizing my failures rather than the things that I did for him. You see, because I think a lot of us, um, we get overwhelmed when we read scripture, I know I do. Like, you got a command. Jesus looks at the crowds and he says, he says, you shall be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Okay? I'm like, failing. Not doing good. Okay? Or you look at what Peter says to the crowd. He says to the Jews, he says, you shall be holy as your heavenly father is holy. Not perfect, not holy. Okay, failing so far. Or Paul, he looks out at the Romans and he says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. Again, not offering, to, uh, not offering myself to God the way I should. You see, and I look at those commands and I find myself constantly failing or falling short because I often think that God has called me to this conformity to a perfect standard. You see what I'm saying? I, I think a lot of us gauge how well we're doing or are standing before God by our conformity to a perfect standard. Or some of you guys might gauge your maturity by how bold you are how willing you are to speak the truth in any situation. 
Maybe some of you gauge your spiritual maturity or how you're doing with your commitment to religious activity. You know, you come here regularly, you help out in your community, you help out with your neighbors. Or maybe some of you might even gauge um, your spiritual maturity by the knowledge that you have. Like you have, you understand this theological concept, you understand this book of the Bible, you have this many verses memorized. You see, what if it was not a conformity to a perfect standard? What if it was not knowledge? What if it was not boldness that God called us to? But what if it was something different? What if it was gospel? What if he called us to the gospel? Okay, what if that was our standard? In other words, a couple of weeks ago, Francis talked on this one verse in Philippians 1.27. I'll put it on the screen here. It says, just the first part of the verse, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It doesn't say only let your manner of life be worthy of perfection or only let your manner of life be marked by a commitment to religious activity or marked by boldness or knowledge. It says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You see, what if what God called us to was the gospel? We were to center ourselves on the gospel and we were to pursue a gospel-centered trajectory. You guys know what a trajectory is? Like I just flew over to Uganda last month and you could pull up on the screen. If you want to make your flight so much longer than it actually is, just watch that plane not move across the Atlantic. So I pull that up. It shows where you started, where you're headed, and then it shows the, uh, a solid line where you've been. A little plane shows you where you're at. And then the dotted line shows your trajectory, where you're headed. What if God has called us to a gospel-centered trajectory? What if that's what he called us to? What if that should be our gauge? And so, as we talk this morning, I want to talk about this gospel-centered trajectory, gospel-centered mindset. But before we continue, we have to just define what the gospel is. In order to call ourselves to this gospel-centeredness, we have to make sure that we all agree what the gospel is. Now, there's been many perversions of the gospel. When I was in Africa, a lot of crazy American preachers have gone over there and convinced some that the gospel is all about health, the gospel is all about wealth, the gospel is all about prosperity. In other words, believe in Jesus and you will have money in your pocket. Believe in Jesus and you will prosper anything that you do. Or believe in Jesus and you won't be sick anymore. So some think that's the gospel, but that's a perversion, that's a distortion of the gospel. Some think that, and some of us think that the gospel is maybe a creed to affirm, or it's a, it's a prayer to pray, or maybe it's raising a, our hands when the preacher asks for a show of hands, those who believe in Jesus, or maybe it's coming forward at a crusade and acknowledging Christ. Some have even thought that the gospel is just believing the right historical facts about the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. But I would say that none of that is necessarily the gospel in its entirety. You see, I think what we've done is we pull the cross and the resurrection of Christ out of the context, out of the story of Scripture. And when we rip the cross and the resurrection out of the story, the context of the rest of the Bible, we strip the cross of its power and we strip the resurrection of its purpose. You see, big picture, this is what God was doing God was on a trajectory. His trajectory was to glorify himself. And so he was sitting in eternity past 
thinking, I'm going to glorify myself. I'm going to do something that will maximize my glory. And so what he does is he centers all of creation. He begins creating. And he sets the backdrop. All the sun, the moon, the stars, the the earth, the landscape, the oceans. He creates all of that to scream his glory. So it's like we have the stage and the props all set up. And they're all screaming God's fame and God's glory. And then he creates us, mankind, against this glorious backdrop, not only to display his glory, but to display himself. And this is the trajectory that he put us on. He set all of creation and mankind on this trajectory to glorify himself. And what did we do? We went our own way, right? And Adam failed and Eve failed. And then we see in uh, uh, Genesis 12, You see Israel being raised up. And then Israel, even though God richly blessed Israel, Israel decided not to be a blessing to other nations and to ignore God. And they went their own way. And then you see God raising up the judges to kind of pull Israel back on this trajectory. And they ignored. Or the kings to bring them back on this trajectory. Or all the different prophets trying to center Israel on this uh, trajectory. And again, nothing worked. And so the thesis of the Old Testament is basically man can't. Man can't write their course. Man can't get back on this trajectory that they started on. And then the New Testament, obviously, everything that we just sung about, we have Jesus. And Jesus came to write all of creation and mankind back on this course. He came to restore, to redeem, to put us back on this course, this gospel-centered trajectory. You see, people over the last few decades, they've emphasized saying that, you know, Jesus is our Savior. Just believe Jesus is our Savior. Or some have emphasized, no, 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 he's not only our Savior, but he's our Lord. And then some have said, no, but he's our King. He's not only our Savior, he's not only our Lord, he's not only our King, he's all three of those things combined. You see, he saved us from that trajectory towards hell and put us back on the God-intended trajectory. Not only that, but he's the Lord. In other words, he walked the path. He showed us how to stay on this trajectory. And also, he's our King. All the other kings couldn't establish God's kingdom, but Jesus could establish God's kingdom on earth. That's the gospel. That's what God has called us to. That's what Jesus did. He restored creation. He restored mankind back on this God-given trajectory. And a lot of you guys are like, you know, I've heard that. I've heard that. Maybe not the way you explain it, but I've heard that before. And in fact, a lot of you might even get bored when you hear the gospel. In other words, you hear the preacher at the end of the service, Francis, Todd, whoever it might be, sharing the gospel at the end, and you kind of tune out. You're like, that's for the immature. That's for the babes in Christ, those that just are still sucking on bottles. You know, like, I don't want to listen to that. Like, I get that. Get that. But the gospel is not something that we mature past or grow beyond. The gospel is something we mature into and grow into. You see, the gospel is our starting point but it is also the reference point for the rest of our lives. In other words, we never grow past the cross, but we continue to grow into the cross. And so this morning, what I want to talk about is how we as believers 
those of you that believe in Jesus Christ, how you can continue to walk in the gospel and not go beyond the gospel and not walk outside or not think that you're matured beyond the gospel, but how to stay gospel-centered. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to start today at verse 36. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 36. And I'm just going to give you a little summary of what came before this verse. So you have all these Old Testament saints, these people that believed God. They were known by their faith, okay? You got Noah. Imagine this. You're Noah. You're asked by God to build an ark in a place like the middle of Kansas, okay, or Colorado. There's no water to be seen. And for a hundred years, he believed God and kept on building that ark. Pretty nutty, right? It says in Genesis 6 that all of mankind, their hearts were bent towards evil continually. And so imagine all these people just saying, you're foolish, you're stupid, you're an idiot, don't believe God. But for a hundred years, he kept on building that ark, knowing that God was going to do what he said he would do. That's faith. Or how about Abraham? He leaves his homeland. He believes that God's going to start a great nation through him. But the guy's old, right? He gets older and older, and pretty soon he reaches 100. And then finally, God gives him a son. And this son of promise, this son that God was going to start a nation through, he says, you know what? Go and sacrifice that son. He believed him. He believed God and went and did it. Or how about this? Moses. Moses, a guy that didn't think he could speak very well. He went before the most powerful king, the Pharaoh, of the most powerful nation, Egypt, And he boldly went before, not once, not twice, but numerous times, and said, let God's people go. And finally, the Pharaoh let the people go. And then he had to lead these annoying, stubborn, complaining people around in the wilderness for 40 years. And he kept believing God. Or you got Rahab. She believed God and hid the spies so that they could spy out on uh, Jericho. Or how about Joshua? Think of Joshua. Military man understands military strategy, okay? God tells him, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go march around the city walls of Jericho with trumpets. I want you to blow your trumpets for six days, and then on the seventh day, keep blowing those trumpets and then yell at the city walls. Makes a whole lot of sense, right? But Joshua believed him. Or Gideon, he only had 300 men. He went up against the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all that it said is that they were more numerous than locusts. That's how many men he was against. He only had 300. Okay? And what did he have? Trumpets. God's into trumpets, musical instruments. Trumpets and what else? Broken jars. And so what they were supposed to do is blow the trumpets, smash the jars, and hold torches up. Crazy, right? But he believed God by faith. And then you got David, right? David, small little scrawny shepherd boy. Everybody else is like fearful of this guy named uh, Goliath. This Philistine, no one wants to go against him. And what does David do? David says, I'll take him. I got him. I'll take him. And then obviously you have all the prophets. All the prophets went before this uh, idolatrous and adulterous people and faithfully proclaimed God's truth. And so we look at these people and we pick up in verse 36 and it says, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 36, it says, as for others, they suffered mocking, flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. 
They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. And then look at this statement. Of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts, mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. And that statement right there, of whom the world was not worthy. I look, I read Romans, uh, Hebrews 11, and I conclude, likewise, the world was not worthy, and nor am I worthy. I immediately think, look at what Moses did and Abraham, and no, there's no way my life will ever compare. The world is not worthy of them, and neither am I worthy of those people. But you see, that's not what it goes on to say. In fact, it says in verse 39, And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God has provided something better for us, here we are included, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. You see, these men and women of faith in the Old Testament, the world was not worthy. And guess what? We are included in this list. You see, we often look at these people and we're like, these guys are remarkable. These guys are standouts. There's no way I will ever be like them. But you have to understand, these people were not marked by their perfection. They were not marked by their overt wickedness. They were marked by faith. Okay? Okay, Abraham, he believed God to sacrifice Isaac. But prior to, he laughed at God. Not a good thing, right? Moses, he went before the Pharaoh. But before that, he said, God, I can't. And then before that, he was a murderer. David, yeah, he was a godly man, but also he was a murderer and an adulterer. You see, these men were not marked by their wickedness, not marked by their perfection. They were marked by faith. And we are part of this group. If this could be expanded, if chapter 11 could be expanded, we would be included in this list. You see, these were just simply reference points to line us up with this trajectory. In other words, God says, this is where humanity has been. This is where people have been. This is the path, the flight pattern I want you to continue on. Now you are here in 2008, entering 2009, and continue on this same trajectory that these Old Testament saints were on. You see, the Old Testament was full of people that failed God, but there were these remnants, there were these people, these standouts that believed God. And God said, through the writer of Hebrews, he says, continue on this same trajectory. And then if you look at chapter 12, the author picks up on this point. Chapter 12, verse 1 says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let's just focus on that for a second. Since we're surrounded by all these great men and women of faith, that's, he's prepping us for something. Since we have all these reference points, and don't think of these witnesses as like a stadium full of people that, and we're on the track and it's our turn in the relay. They already handed the baton off to us and now they're up in the stands watching us continue this race. Don't think of them as spectators, okay? Because trust me, they have better things to look at right now, okay? They're in heaven, they're worshiping. They're not taking their attention off Christ on the throne and looking down at our pitiful lives, right? They're not doing that, Okay. Instead, they're witnesses to something. Not to us, they're witnesses to God. In other words, they're witnesses to God showing that, uh, that God working through them by faith. In other words, they're just saying, all I did was believe God and look what he did through me. He said, do this, so I did that. And then look at this power that came through me. 
That's all they're saying to us. Their lives are saying that to us. They're not saying, look at me, how perfect I was. They're just saying, I believe God. And look at what, how he used me. Look at what he did. You see, that's what they're witnessing to us. They are our reference points. And it goes on here. It says, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Now, let me talk about the latter part first. The sin which clings so closely. Just for a second. We talk a lot about sin at Cornerstone and how we should rid our life of sin and put these things to death and put them off. Obviously, in order to stay on this gospel-centered trajectory, we have to rip off ourselves any sin that's holding us down. I mean, it doesn't make sense to trust God for our salvation and then begin a life not trusting him. It's like, God, I'll trust you at the beginning, but the rest of my life, I leave in my own hands. Or we say, God, I thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I bear them no more, but God, I want some of them back because I want to live in them. I mean, that doesn't make sense, right? So we need to rid our life of the sin, but then it also says something, and this is what I want to camp on. It says, let us lay aside every weight. Okay? This is athletic terminology. Back then, they didn't want any garment or anything holding them back. So what they would do is they would run naked. Could you imagine watching a track meet? They were running naked because they didn't want anything holding them back. You see, when I was in high school, we wanted lots of clothing. In fact, I remember the one day when they passed out uniforms for cross country and track. We'd show up so early. As soon as the coach keyed into his office, all of us would race towards the drawer where he kept the uniform because none of us wanted these short nylon panties. We wanted the long ones because we didn't care if anything was holding us back. We wanted to protect our image. Them, they could care less. They just were... They were just naked, running. They didn't want anything to prevent them from going towards that trajectory, their goal, you see? And I think there's hundreds of different things that I could camp on right now and talk about different weights that hold us back. The one weight that has held me down for most of my Christian life is not maintaining this thing called a gospel-centered trajectory or a gospel-centered mindset. I think the one thing that holds a lot of you guys down is you don't maintain this gospel-centered mindset, so you fall off into two ditches. And let me just say they're two extremes. In other words, you fall off into legalism and you try to transverse that trajectory and continue on that trajectory of legalism. Or the other one would be licentiousness. Now let me define these two, because I think There's a lot of you in either camp. Legalism would be you find you're failing and you just get overwhelmed and frustrated and you feel like you're constantly failing God. And so you are continually beating yourselves up here in legalism. That's not gospel-centered. On the other side, you have licentious people. People that are just like, They don't care about their sin. They totally suppress conviction. They don't think it's any big deal. Big deal, God died on the cross for my sins, so I'm just going to continue living in them. You see, gospel-centered is something different. Take, for example, the sin of lying. Some of you guys are like, I can't believe I just lied. I am so overwhelmed that I lied. 
That's not gospel-centered. Gospel-centered is realizing I lied, but Christ died on that cross for that sin, and that sin is on the cross, so I'm going to get back up on the racetrack and continue. Some of you guys with lying, you're like, forget that. I have other sins. Who cares about lying? Lying's not that big of a deal. But you have to remember if you're erring on this side, wait, 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 lying put Christ on the cross. That sin nailed my Savior to the cross. And so you need to get back on gospel-centeredness. In other words, you can't condemn yourself. That's not gospel-centered in legalism. You cannot excuse your sin in licentiousness. You need to stay on gospel-centered, Christ-centered, cross-centered living. And you see Jesus reaching out to these two extremes. He reached out to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders who were just like heaping up all of these burdens and saying, try to be perfect and you're failing and you, you're awful and you're terrible. You see him reaching and saying, no, 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 that's not, don't listen to those people. Come over here where I'm at, gospel-centered. And then you see him also reaching out to those that are broken, or not broken, but those that are sinners, those that are like the sinful outcasts, those that are the tax collectors. And he says, no, 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 you can't ignore your sin I came to save you from your sin. Get back over here. And so he's pulling people from both extremes and trying to get them on gospel-centeredness. Now, Paul, he does the same thing. You got a passage where Paul and Peter are interacting, and it's, it's kind of like an unsettling interaction between Paul and Peter because they're disagreeing. And what was taking place is they were eating a meal, pretty casual, pretty normal, and Paul and Peter, they were both eating with Jews and Gentiles alike. And then all of a sudden, these yuppity yup men from uh, Jerusalem came. These Jews came. And then Peter was like all scared about what the Jews might think, seeing Peter, an apostle, eating with Jews and Gentiles both. And so what Peter did, he kind of pulled himself back from the Gentiles and only started hanging out with the Jews. And Paul's looking at all this and he's like, wait a second. You're eating with Jews and Gentiles, and all of a sudden these other guys come, and then you just hang out exclusively with the Jews? That's not right. That's hypocrisy. But he says something very unique in Galatians 2. It says, When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, it's a little bit confusing. The first part of the statement is what I wanted to focus on. He said, when I saw that his conduct and the others was not in step with the truth of the gospel. In other words, Paul could have said, Peter, you're being a stinking racist. And you need to start hanging out with Jews and Gentiles alike because that's what God has called us to. So stop being a racist. Get your head on straight. But he doesn't say that. He says, right now, your life is not conduit of the gospel. In other words, people are looking at you and thinking that Jesus is only concerned with Jews because you, an apostle, once sent out from Jesus, is only hanging out with the Jews now. No, no, no. Gospel-centeredness. Peter, get back on gospel-centeredness. Hang out with Jews and Gentiles because the gospel is for all people of all nations. So he tries to pull Peter from his legalistic side back on gospel-centered living, gospel-centered conduct. Then you see Paul with the Romans. And he pulls people from the licentious side. He says to the Romans, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? 
By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it any longer? There's, there were these Romans that were thinking, you know, I'm saved by grace. Great. Thank you, God. Now I'm going to take those sins back and I'm going to continue to live in them. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. That doesn't make any sense. If you say you died to sin and your sins are on the cross, how can you continue to live in them? So what Paul was doing, he was trying to pull them back on gospel centeredness. You see, here's the key. Some of you are on both sides of the spectrum. You're either in the ditch of legalism or you're in the gutter of licentious living. But what God has called us to is gospel, that our lives would be conduit of the gospel. You see, all of the New Testament epistles, all of the commands are simply little nudges to get us back on this gospel-centered path that we're called to run on. You see, that's why... Paul says, husbands, love your wives. And a lot of you guys, you're like, I can't believe I'm not loving my wife. I'm horrible. I suck. I'm just, I can't believe I'm doing that. I'm a failure. So you're on this side, right? And some of you guys are on the other side. You're like, I don't want to love my wife. You don't know my wife. I don't want to love her. Forget about her. And you're ignoring that command. So one of you guys are excusing it. Another one of you guys is feeling condemned by it. And God's like, no, no, no. Don't weigh yourself down with that command. And don't forget about that command. I've given you that command to put you on gospel centeredness. Because he says, husbands, love your wives. Why? Because it displays Christ's love for the church. Your gospel conduit. Or how about this one that a lot of you guys don't like right now? Love your neighbor as yourself. And we've said, guess what? Neighbor means neighbor. And you guys are like, no, 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 Matt. Those of you guys over here in licentious side, you're like, neighbor just means people in general, Matt. Your neighbors aren't people. But you're just like, anybody. I, just, I love people. But some of you guys are totally excusing that command. And then other of you guys are over here on the legalistic side. You're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm not loving my neighbor. And God's like, no, no, no. Don't beat yourself up. Don't forget about it. Instead, gospel-centered. Love your neighbor because that's weird. Most neighbors, they're friendly. Most neighbors, neighbors are respectful, cordial. But to love, people will turn heads because that's gospel-centeredness. Now your life is conduit of the gospel. See, this is what God's called us to. He doesn't want to condemn us or overwhelm us with commands. He doesn't want us to excuse his words. He wants us to live in such a way, as it says in Philippians 1.27, that our life is conduit of the gospel, so that even before we say anything, people will already say, I see something in your life. I see Jesus in you. So with that backdrop of laying aside these things, The writer of Hebrews goes on and he says, at the latter half of verse 1, he says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So here's the one command in this passage. Let us run Run, that word in the Greek comes from the word that we get, the English word, agony. Run with pain and agony. Stay focused. Run with endurance. It says, run with fixing your eyes on Jesus Christ. Don't fix your eyes on legalism and your failures. Don't fix your eyes on licentious living and just think about sin. Fix your eyes instead on Jesus Christ. And it says, the author and perfecter of our faith. 
In other words, he plucked some of us out of the life of legalism or a life of sin, and he put us on this gospel-centered path. He started us there. He's not only the author, he's also the perfecter of our faith. He's the one that helps us continue down this path. So he's the author, the perfecter of our faith. He says, fix your eyes on him. And it makes sense. Like, you got these Old Testament saints whose lives we're supposed to line ourselves up with. And then as we look forward, we're looking forward at Christ. He's our destination. That's where we're headed. And so this week, I've thought a lot about the life of Christ. And as we're here in the Christmas season, Jim was talking about the incarnation of Christ and the birth of Christ. And I thought about Jesus' incarnation and the implications it has on my life. And I think about a lot of those people that I have a hard time reaching out to. And I think about some of those places that I might not be willing to serve the Lord in. And I thought about the incarnation in Christ's life because he's my example. He's who I'm fixing my eyes on. And here's what God did. He says, here's some of the things that I wrote down. Jesus, he exited the glory of heaven and came to the filth of earth. Why? Gospel. Jesus left the voices of angels praising him and entered into the voices of men insulting him. Why? For the gospel. Jesus left a throne, came to a manger. He demoted himself from a king to a slave. He removed his clothes of glory and put on the rags of humanity. Why? Gospel. He went from being renowned to unknown. Why? He wanted his life to be conduit of the gospel. And so then again, I think about my life. I think, okay, I can reach out to that person because God reached down to me. I can go there because God went from heaven to earth for me. Or I think about the life of Christ. Just a normal day in the life of Christ. Normal interactions. And I think about the way I interact with my neighbors and the way I walk in to people that I work with and the way I interact or the way I interact with my kids or uh, my spouse. And you think about Jesus And Jesus showed compassion, not frustration, to the crowds that followed him. Why? Gospel. Jesus displayed forgiveness, not judgment, towards sinners. Jesus exuded love to the rejected, kindness to the outcast. He demonstrated patience towards the unlearned disciples. He conveyed self-control towards the opposing religious leaders. Why? Gospel. Jesus gave sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, deliverance to the demon-possessed, He healed the diseased. He showed comfort to the hurting, gentleness to the oppressed, mercy to the broken. Why? Because he wanted his life to always be conduit of the gospel. Jesus wasn't weighed down in legalism. He wasn't dismissing the commands of God. He wanted to show compassion, show love, so that people would see gospel in him. So I thought about the incarnation. I thought about the life of Christ. And then finally I thought about this cross and the sacrifice of Christ. And thinking about how much I'm willing to give up. Am I willing to bear the cross? Am I willing to really give it all up for him? And some of the things that I wrote down were Jesus entrusted himself to the Father's will for the gospel. Even though it's not what he wanted to do. He subjected himself to ridicule. He tolerated flogging, beating, mocking, whipping, spitting. Why? Gospel. He endured the nails the thorns, the rugged cross for the gospel. He bore our sins for the gospel. He experienced being forsaken by his father for the gospel. He suffered under the full weight of the father's wrath. Why gospel? And then he considered it all joy because he knew 
that it was all for the sake of the gospel. You see, Jesus is not our static standard. Jesus is our dynamic example. In other words, we had a static standard in the Old Testament. With the Old Testament law, here's the do's and don'ts. Jesus came not to be that static standard. He came also to be the dynamic example that we are to walk in the footsteps of. A lot of times, this is the way I think of Christ. I'm like, man, Christ, you were all compassionate, all loving. You were completely humble. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. Instead, think about how Christ traveled and how he walked this path and the way in which he interacted. Am I at all speaking like Christ would speak, interacting with people the way Christ would interact? Is my life conduit of the gospel just as Jesus' life was conduit of the gospel? Does this make sense? This is what God has called us to. And that's why Peter, he looks at Jesus' life and he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. Why? So that we might be absolutely perfect? No, so that we might follow in his footsteps. It says, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the Father's will. You see, Jesus has called us to his example. This cross again, should be a constant reminder that we failed. So get rid of that perfect standard. You're not going to make it. God made it. God did it through Jesus. What he's called us to is gospel-centered living so that when I do fail into one of these two trenches, I get back up, confess my sins, ask for forgiveness, and get back on that right path. That's what God has called us to. That liberated me. I now feel like when I'm coming off the soccer field, God's not disappointed, but God is pleased and emphasizing the way in which I trusted him and the faith that I showed on the field that day. That's what God has called us to. That's faith. That's the faith of the Old Testament saints. That's what he's called us to now, walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. So practically speaking, this is why we have to love our wives. This is why we have, wives, you have to submit to your husbands. This is why children, you're to honor your parents and obey your parents. This is why all the commands are supposed to align us on this gospel-centered living. You guys, this is community. This is what you've been called to. You have been plucked up and put in a certain neighborhood or city, inside see me, outside see me. You've been put in these areas to be a catalyst for gospel-centered living. And so when you see a husband not loving their wife, don't go to them and derail them and defame them. Instead, say, for the sake of the mission, start loving your wife so that your marriage is conduit of the gospel. And some might say, but you don't understand my wife. She's that dripping faucet. She's just, she's unbearable. Forget that. Think about how annoying, we weren't a dripping faucet. We were just a loud annoyance to God and God kept loving us. Or you might hear about somebody at work and how they're not working hard or they're talking bad about their boss. Go to them and for the sake of the mission say, you have to stop complaining. You have to start working hard. I don't care how hard your boss is or how uh, disrespectful he is. For the sake of the gospel, you have to be conduit of the gospel. Or you might look at one of your believing neighbors and they go in, they shut the garage door behind them, they turn on the TV and they ignore the world around them. And you might need to go to them and say, you're not, brother, sister, you're not loving your neighbor. 
And they might say, oh, forget it. And it's like, no, 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 love your neighbor. You are bearing the same name I'm bearing. You're bearing the name of Christ. So for the sake of the mission, start walking with us. Walk on this gospel-centered path. Allow your life to be conduit of the gospel. You see, you guys, this totally freed me up. Because I realized that, okay, I might have fell in for part of the day to the ditch of legalism or the gutter of licentious living. But my day was marked not by overt wickedness. It was not marked by perfection. It was marked by being a conduit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what God has called us to. That is the way we are to live. And that's why the writer of Hebrews said, forget about everything else and just fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. And that's why he kind of reemphasizes that idea of fixing. And he says in verse 3, Consider him. Think about him. Meditate on him. Process through his life. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners. Hostility against himself. Why should we consider him? So that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And then this is not encouraging, but think about this. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted the point of shedding blood. Okay? You guys are working hard. You might be sweating. You might have a cramp. You might be totally winded. But again, none of you are working so hard for the Lord and striving and running so hard that you've shed any blood yet. So keep on keeping on. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Because not only is he the author, but he is that perfecter of our faith. That's what we've been called to, church. That's community. You have been put as a catalyst and a stimulus of this gospel in your neighborhood, to call other people to it, to call them out of licentious living and call them out of trying to save themselves through legalism. And as a community, building together, working together, striving arm in arm, yoking yourself together to maintain this gospel-centeredness so that your life would be conduit of Jesus Christ and his gospel. That's what we've been called to. And so we're going to wrap up the service by just singing a song and a chorus here. Um, and it's all about our Savior. And what I want you to be thinking about is how God is able, he's able to do extraordinary things, and what he's called us to is to be faithful, just to believe him. When God says that the faith of a mustard seed can move mountains, believe him. When he says, do this and this will happen, believe him. That's what God has called us to, namely a life of faith.